0: just a minute while we make it sound pretty. My voice doesn't normally feed back like that, in case you're wondering, but it might this morning. So um, if you uh, happen to have a, a Bible with you uh, and you want to turn in it, or if you have a phone with you and you want to navigate with it, we will be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. And uh, as you're turning there or finding that, whatever the case is, um, I wanted to open to share with you guys uh, a story about my family. So uh, it's about five years ago and uh, I'm living here in Denver with my wife, Kelly, and uh, at the time we have three kids. So we had Caleb and McKinley and uh, our daughter who we'd recently adopted named Madison. And uh, we received a phone call. It was a human services worker here in, in Denver County. And she said, uh, I need to inform you guys that uh, Madison has uh, a baby brother who's just been born, baby half-brother. His name is Harry. And we're looking for a foster home for Harry. Not an adoption home, right, a foster home. And so uh, Kelly and I heard this news and you know, we were reeling and we thought, okay, how could we, how could we make this work, right? Because our worst case scenario, our greatest fear was this, that we would say yes, we would bring Harry into our home and that one day he would be reunited with biological parents, which is often the case in foster, foster reunifications, and if that were to happen, what kind of a message would we be sending to our adopted daughter, Madison? Would she look at us and say, are you guys going to send me away too? Would she ever be able to trust us again, would she ever attach to us as her as her adopted family, right? That was a terrifying proposition. But it was equally terrifying to think about the idea of you know, Madison growing up and never knowing this, this, this brother that existed. And so Kelly and I, we, we prayed about it, we thought about it and we said, okay, the only way that we could possibly imagine making this work would be uh, to bring Harry into our home but to keep his identity a secret. And so that's what we did. We, we said yes. Uh, Harry came into our home, and for two years, we kept his identity a complete secret from our other biological kids. Now, I gotta say, that's pretty easy to do for a couple of weeks, but man, a couple of years of that, you know, Kelly and I were like, surely they're gonna figure this out, right? I mean, because you talk about it, you talk late at night, you try to whisper in the bedroom or whatever, but then a kid comes in because they had a bad dream or they need a glass of water or something, and you're like, ugh. Yeah, certainly wasn't talking about that. Oh, just you know, what do you try to cover it up, or right? Or there's a there's a, a service, a human service worker, you know, or some kind of a social worker. They're in your house all the time when you're fostering, right? Surely someone's going to say something, right? Or good grief, they're going to look at them. I mean, just to put Madison and Harry next to each other, they look related. They have obvious biological similarities, right? We're like, they're, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. Anyway, two years of this goes by, and. Uh, after, after two years, the, the courts tell us that, that Harry has become adoptable. So the first thing we do is we sit down as a family and I tell our kids, I say, hey guys, how, how would you feel if Harry were to become your brother? And it's this beautiful family moment. Everyone's like, oh yeah, we would love that. Oh, the happy cheers, confetti. It's great, it's great. So then I said, okay, so there's this other thing. So it turns out that Madison and Harry are biologically related. And my kids were blown away. They were like, what? What are you saying? Is this even a real thing? But my, my son, who I asked his permission to do this, he totally does the head exploding you know, gesture. He was like Pfft. <laughs> And as this is happening, Kelly and I are like, really? Like, how could you guys not figure this out? Like, it would, I mean, I think I'm a pretty good liar, but I don't think I'm that good. Like, this seems like it's something you should have picked up on somehow along the way here, right? Well, I tell you this story because I think my kids perfectly encapsulate the attitude of every single person every single Christmas. That is, Jesus breaks into our world as a baby and nobody recognizes him. Nobody recognizes him for who he is. And so as a result, they just go on living life as though nothing ever happened. As a response to that, I want to spend a little time looking at Isaiah 9 together. You were wondering, am I going to get there? Yes, I'm going to get there. Before I get there, I want to give you a little bit of an historical background for what was actually happening at the time that Isaiah 9 was written. So this is a time in Israel's history known as the Divided Kingdom. So monarchy worked for like a short stint in Jewish history, and then all of a sudden it disintegrated into essentially two kingdoms. You know, Kings were warring, and so you had Israel to the north, the northern kingdom, and then you had Judah to the south. And if you read the records in the Bible, like Kings and Chronicles, and you're able to stay awake long enough to read some of those books, you will come to the conclusion that actually it's Judah is where the true kind of faithful Jews still live, right? That's where God's people really are. That's where the faithful remnant is. They're in Judah. And that's where this is taking place. Isaiah is preaching in in Judah. I want to uh, just, you don't have to turn there or anything, but I'm going to read a short section out of 2 Kings. This is uh, uh, chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, but it describes the conflict that's happening when Isaiah is on the scene in Judah. And it says this It says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. That's in Judah. And they besieged Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. They besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elith for Syria. So uh, this was a section of Judah that they had only recently won back in conquest, and now it's been shipped away again. And then uh, the men are, are drove away, and the Edomites, it says, so this third nation, so you've got the Israelites You've got the Syrians, and then you've got the Edomites now, this third enemy nation. They come up, and they, they dwell in Eliph, where they live to this day. So you're Ahaz, right? You're the king of the faithful remnant that ex- still exists in Judah. And you're, you're dealing with a split kingdom that is now fighting you on the battlefront. And in the midst of that, you've got all these other local nations that are taking advantage of the situation and they're chipping away at your empire, little by little, and you can just feel the walls closing in on you, right? In fact, if you read a similar account in 2 Corinthians, you add the Philistines in there as another neighboring nation that is attacking you, right? So you're getting it from all sides here. So you're, but you're Ahaz, you're the king of the faithful remnant of the Jews that still live in Judah. So, so what is it that you do? Well, keep reading. Verse 7. Ahaz has a great plan. He sends messengers to a guy named Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Now, this is not Syria. This is Assyria. This is the regional superpower. And he reaches out to their king, and he says this. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria, And from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me? And then it says, Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord. Ooh, that's a no-no. Not supposed to do that. And the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. So it's not exactly a proud time in Jewish history right now. Their nation is split. Their land is being chipped away by foreign nations. Their king sounds like a great guy. Actually, he's totally faithless, and he guts the temple of all the gold so that he can make a peace treaty with the scariest power in the region. That's where they stand. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that, that sounds like it sucks. And you'd be right, it sucks. But, but the king has made a peace treaty, and it's a pretty powerful neighbor, right? So maybe you're thinking, okay, well, maybe at least there's going to be peace, right? Like maybe at least they're not going to die. <sighs> just sigh your sigh of disappointment because that's not what happens. In Second Chronicles 28, don't turn there, but here's what happens. It says, the king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of helping him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king of the princes, and gave it as a tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. So on top of everything else, total Assyrian betrayal, total stab in the back. Now this is the part where you're, you're, if you're a faithful Jew, and you're living in Judah, and you're living through all this, you think to yourself, Ahaz, throw yourself at the mercy of God. Because what else do you have to do, man? Like it's, I know it looks bleak, but good grief, God has been, he has been faithful to us. He has always kept his... His promises to us. And where else are you going to go anyway, man? Like, this is your opportunity. Just throw yourself at the mercy of God. Well, keep reading here. Here's what Ahaz actually does. This is 2 Chronicles 28, 22, and 23. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. And he said because the gods of the king of Syria have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they may help me. And then it says, but they were the ruin of him and all Israel. So it's not looking good. Israel is in political ruin. It is in moral ruin. It is in religious ruin, and their king, the king of the faithful remnant, he is leading the people into, like, a free-form jazz exploration of idolatrous circus worship. That, that is the situation in which Isaiah chapter 9 was written. That is the situation under which the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet comes on the scene. So given all that, and now we're going to turn there. You were like, is he going to turn there? Is he ever going to get there? Yes, yes, we've gotten there. Given all that, what we're going to read here, this would have sounded like great news to anybody living in Judah during this time, okay? Look with me. I'm going to read uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through about 6. It says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light Right? There was, a, there was a faithful Jew that he was like, yeah, that's me. That's me. It's, it's pretty dark down here. It is not looking good. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. This says this. This is interesting. You have multiplied the nation. This is not exactly prime time for expansion in Judah's history. They are collapsing on, in on themselves, but the prophet says you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Essentially, he's saying, you're going to rejoice like you do on the happiest day in ancient life. You know what the happiest day in ancient life was? Harvest day. That was the day where you said, man, this is the day to throw a party. We have our food. We're going we're to survive. We're going to make it to the next, you know, the next season of crops and... It was the happiest day in history. That's what they're going to be like. And then it says this, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That would be a reference to Judges 7, where Gideon defeats Midian. Don't you love when these names rhyme? It makes it totally non-confusing, right? Gideon defeats Midian in Judges 7 with 300 men, okay, Midianites have, like, they have been ruling over Israel, and they get defeated by 300 men who, uh, how should we put this? Let's say, we, we would say today, they had less than a first-grade education, okay? These, these were not exactly all-star soldiers, and yet they defeat the Midianites with these 300 men. So the, the hope for justice on God's enemies um, is, is then the next thing that we get to right here, right after that. It says, the, every boot for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This would have sounded like great news if you were living in Judah at the time. You were like, really? Is this really happening? What reason do we have for this? this hope? And it says, verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So the prospect of a, the nation's holiness and righteousness being restored, their whole nation being, you know, multiplying and, and reaching its peak again, the, the great joy, the defeating of the enemies, all this hangs on this child. And we learn why in verse 6 and 7. This is the part that sounds like Christmas. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Guys, this is way more than any Jew living in Judah during that day could have hoped for. They're not just getting the promise of another king. They've seen that. They know what happens. You get a king, that guy's cool for a while, then he flames out and he turns into an idolatrous, you know, worship circus. They're not getting just another king. They're getting a forever king, an everlasting king. They're not just going to get peace from Assyria, from their Assyrian overlords, right, who have totally betrayed them and you know, stabbed him in the back. They're getting peace forever, everlasting peace. They're not just getting the gold in their temple back. That would have been great. Any Jew in that time said, if we're getting the gold back, that is great. But they're not just getting that. They're getting the very presence of the Lord with them like I said this is way better way way better than any Jew living that day could have hoped for so if you're like me and I know I am <laughs> you're wondering to yourself right now what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas here's what it has to do with Christmas The arrival of a baby Jesus is the open secret for all humanity. He is the savior that we never asked for and that we didn't even know we needed. He is more than we could have ever hoped for. He has come to fix things that we don't even have the courage to believe can be fixed. He has come to be what every other political and religious leader in history always promises to be, but never delivers on. So the question before us this Christmas, and really every Christmas, is is this. Will we recognize Jesus for who he really is? Because despite the fact that Jesus really has come, and he really does offer us the greatest of joys, eternal peace, and a forever kingdom filled with justice, you and I, many of us, we maintain the same ironic postures at Christmas time every single year. We think, well, this year's coming to an end, it kind of sucked. Maybe next year I'll have a little bit more peace. Or we say, you know, I don't really have $50 in my account, but Amazon's running a special right now and if I buy that I'll feel good for at least a little bit. Or we all get together with our families, right? This is what we do on Christmas Day. We all get together. You know we get together with our families so that we can talk about our politics. Right? Isn't that what an American holiday is? We all get together with our family so we can talk about politics. Or, or, you get together with your family so that you can pray that it doesn't come up. Let me invite a little practical thinking for us here, okay? Here's some reality. In the, in the next three weeks, all of us are going to be in different places. We're going to be around different people. Some of us are traveling. Some of us are going to be with people that we don't normally see, Right? So for the next three weeks, what is it that you can do to recognize Jesus for who he really is and to respond to him in worship? If you're one of those people who is traveling to see family or friends, could you seek out a church in that environment? Could you, could you find a way to throw yourself into a church you've never seen before with a bunch of strangers just so that you could experience worship with the one true God, even with people that you've never met before? Some of us are going into families where maybe you're the only Christian in that family. I remember I had a a youth pastor tell me when I was 16 years old, he said, Jason, you are the best Christian somebody knows. That's probably true for all of us. If if you are a follower of Christ, you are probably the best Christian that somebody knows. That's kind of a terrifying thought, right? (laughs) Like, really? (laughs) You're looking at me, I'm the best one you know? Right, right. Uh, look if, if you're going to be around your family and you know that politics are going to come up I can almost promise that it will right when it comes up can you respond differently thinking along the lines that Jesus has come and he has come to offer political peace like nothing we could ever hope for or ever even ever, nothing like we've ever experienced would that change how you showed up when politics came up around your family or your friends Could you dare to move toward that relationship? The one that is, appears hopelessly broken. The one that you think there's no hope for restoration there. And that's probably the person that you see once a year at Christmas, right? Could you choose to move that with the courage to believe that Jesus might actually want to fix that? He may actually want to fix that. He may actually want to fix it and he may actually want to use you to fix it. Listen, I hope you all buy gifts, okay? I buy gifts for my family, I buy gifts for myself. I hope that you guys all buy gifts for your family and buy gifts for yourself. But at the same time, could you like, could we buy one less gift for ourselves just to make a little bit of space in our hearts, right? And with that little bit of space, can we take the money and invest it in in a church or in a kingdom purpose? Could you do that? Could you relax your expectations on yourself for just like five minutes, right? Like, could you... Uh, deliberately do less this Christmas than you did last year? Like, could you deliberately bake fewer cookies? Or could you deliberately put up fewer lights? Or could you just let the house go just a little bit more right before the guests show up? Could you do all those things just so you could rest a little bit and enjoy the blessings of joy that Jesus came to bring us? Could you do that? Kids, I haven't forgotten about you. I know that they're all there, but there's some online too. Could you take a minute when your mind just starts daydreaming about all the gifts that you're going to get? And I know that they do. I know that you do. You know why? Because I'm 39 years old, and I still do this. <laughs> and When that happens for you, could you just stop for a second and say, wait a second. Rather than going down this road in my head, could I like, direct my thoughts to a piece of paper and pick up a pen And just write down, these are the things that Jesus did for me this year that make me thankful. (laughs) Some of the adults are like, maybe I should do that too. I'm thinking, maybe I should do that too. Make a list, right? In closing, I want to remind us of a couple of words that are easy to repeat this time of year. And that can be super, super, super hard to believe in. I have three samples for you. Sample one. Though an infant now we view him, he shall fill his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. Sample two. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Sample three, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. That sounded a whole lot like sample two, didn't it? Okay, well, let's go move on. Let's go to sample three here. Sample three is uh, this one here. Um, he comes to make his blessings flow. That's the one I wanted. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. No more let sin and sorrows grow, or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Do you guys recognize any of these words? Have you heard some of these before? Okay, that was angels from the realms of glory, hark the herald angels sing, hark the herald angels sing, because I did it twice, <laughs> and joy to the world. Those are Christmas carols. Those are written by the saints who have come before us and who have recognized this Jesus for who he says he is and have responded in worship. Isn't that beautiful? Let us do the same. Let's recognize Jesus for who he is and worship him together. He is the savior that we never asked for, that we didn't even know we needed. He is more than we could have ever hoped for. He has come to fix the things that we don't even have the courage to believe can be fixed. He is the great open secret of Christmas. So let's worship him for who he is together. Amen.